This is the Edinburgh Reporter podcast, and today, today I'm really delighted to be joined by Councillor Leslie McInnes, who is the Transport and Environment Convener at the City Council. Um, Leslie, I think it'd be true to say you've got a fairly big workload. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, indeed. A lot of uh, a lot of the stuff that I'm involved with it really touches on everybody's core services, you know, things that people really experience around the city. Everything from you know bin collections through to roads and potholes and all the other parts of transport. So there's a lot going on in it. Um, it keeps me on my toes. It certainly seems to. Um, I particularly wanted to speak to you about spaces for people, and one of the reasons for that is that I've been out uh, on the on the road, so to speak, um, chatting to people. Um, I was up in Braid Road, I've been down on Duddingston Road, and I was out on Lanark Road the other day. And Spaces for People, in case it has passed anybody by, is really a scheme funded essentially by the Scottish Government to create space in various places, in the city centre, in the town centre, create safe access for exercise, um, cycle lanes for commuting and exercise and safety around schools. But of course, it's not exclusively just cycle lanes, which some people seem to think it is. So what I want to ask you is, where do you think we're at with spaces for people? How are you getting on with it? Well, we've made remarkable progress. Um, Any time you make uh, great changes around road space allocations, so you're changing the status quo. Um, it's usually a very long and involved statutory process. It can often take years to implement even relatively simple changes. This time around, because of the emergency powers, um, we've worked really hard to deliver as much as we could in that period of time to deliver exactly the kind of object, you know, the kind of uh, of uh, outcomes that you've just been talking about, providing people with the kind of space to move around safely and confidently, not necessarily having to use a car, not necessarily having to get on a bus, but being able to make different choices really about how to move around the city during this COVID period. And of course, that's also worked very well in terms of uh, the broader um, requirement in this city to move us towards a much more sustainable set of transport possibilities for folks. So it all plays in the same direction. So it we've moved ourselves very quickly forward. Um, one of the, the, the couple of things, the Edinburgh got 5.25 million from the government, which at that point was about half of the, the whole pot, and then the government upped the pot to 30-odd million. Um, but would you, do you think it was true to say that Edinburgh was fairly ready for measures like this? Were you... Well, indeed, I mean, I think this is some of the unseen work that goes on in the council, which people tend not to notice through the headlines or through some of the social media chat about what we're doing inside the council. So we had already been working very hard on trying to understand what the needs were of the city around transport in general terms. When COVID hit us, we were able to look at those plans and say, well, actually, we kind of know what we need to do here. We understand where people need to move. We understand the need to support high streets, for example. Um, we need to. We know about the places for, you know, creating space for exercise. We know that there's a requirement around some of our schools to create better space. So we were actually able to lay out relatively quickly 
the broad brushstrokes of what we could do under this particular form of emergency funding from the Scottish Government. So we were able to move quite quickly on it. And I think that was something that certainly the Scottish Government welcomed and we were able then to take advantage of it and deliver as much as we could for Edinburgh as quickly as we could. I think it's true to say um, that the UK Government, um, the Conservative UK Government, are also behind these kind of measures and that both they and the Scottish Government are very much in favour of not wasting this money, but perhaps looking at ways of making some of the new arrangements into uh, something more permanent. And I know that the Council has just finished um, a consultation on the possibility of making any of these permanent. Are there any initial findings, or do we have to just wait until June until you can share the actual findings with us? Well, I've actually not had the analysis come through yet, uh, which will form the basis of our recommendations that will come forward from officers in June. Um, and it'll be on that basis that we're able, as a council, to make a decision at the Transport and Environment Committee about what we want to retain, what benefits we can see coming forward, what um, what forward movement have we made as a city around some of the measures that we've put in under these emergency measures. I think you're absolutely correct, though. This is not something which is unique to Edinburgh in any sense. Um, there are cities all over the UK and indeed further afield as well, but certainly in the UK, who are looking at how we can take the lessons that we're learning out of the COVID situation about the changes in people's habits, about how they want to move around, how they feel safe, um, the massive increase in, in walking and cycling that we've seen. Um, all of those things are telling us that actually if a city was different, people would be able to make healthier choices. And that's the long-term goal. It's about making the city healthier and greener and giving people more choice than they have at the moment mm. when cities are in general quite dominated by car traffic and heavy volumes of traffic, and that puts a lot of people off. So then you get people who, and people have said to me, um, well, of course, um, it's all right for you, um, but I can't get on a bike or I can't walk to the end of the street or whatever and I need to be able to um, take my car. Um, but then I suppose, um, you know, the counter to that is for people who do need to use a car, if everybody else who is able-bodied can perhaps get on a bike or walk somewhere, then um, in the scheme of things, perhaps that makes, makes a difference. I suppose every single journey on a bike or by foot makes a difference. You, you've hit the nail right in the head, Phyllis. Um, nobody least of all me, is saying everybody has to get rid of their cars and suddenly everybody has to get on a bike. That would be utterly ridiculous if I attempted to say something like that, and I would never would, because I genuinely recognise the fact that there are people out there who have a need of a car, but I also recognise the fact that there are people who would choose to make different choices to get around if they felt welcome as a walker or as a cyclist um, or indeed linking up perhaps with getting on a bus as well you're completing a journey in a number of different ways but at the moment the masses and masses of our city is actually quite hostile to people who want to make those choices the more we can do to encourage people to make those choices where they can not forcing people onto bikes, but people who want to make that choice, whether it's you know, once at a weekend or whether it's every day of the week with their commuting, however they want to choose to get around, we need to give them more opportunity to do that, to make that healthier choice, to feel better, to improve 
um, you know, the health of themselves, their families, you know, whatever it is that they're doing. Mm-hmm. And it helps us move better towards a city where people have that genuine choice. Mm-hmm. At the moment, most people's choice is to sit in a car by themselves in a long line of traffic, adding to congestion, adding to air pollution, adding to all the problems of the city. Instead, what we want to do is make these relatively minor changes mm-hmm. um, to allow people a greater degree of that choice. If you think about it, we if you if you want to concentrate only on cycling, and that seems to become the, the the focal point for an awful lot of criticism mm-hmm. about the schemes that we've brought in. We've only put in 40 kilometres. That's out of a city that's 1,500 kilometres worth of roads in it that we look after. That's a tiny percentage. Now, you know, we've tried to make sensible choices about where we put those in to allow people to commute and you know, use the main roads and so on. Um, but in actual fact, the, the, the cries of all the cyclists are taking over and everything's been done for cyclists couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah. We've got a long way to go before we're anywhere near a Dutch level or one or two of the other European cities that have got so many good facilities for, for children to cycle, for adults to cycle and for people to make those choices. Well, we've got, I didn't know that figure actually, 1,500 kilometres. That's a very interesting figure to hold on to. I have, uh, I have some of these uh, stashed away in the corner of my brain, but if we've only got <laughs> 39 kilometres of segregated cycle lanes, then yes, uh-huh. we do have a way to go. So here's a couple of, you know, the, the criticisms which are levelled at the Spaces for People um, scheme. Um, it's ugly. Um, some people say it's ugly. Uh, that you know all these bollards and well they're not they're the cones to start with and then it mm-hmm. graduates on to the black and white wands do you what do you say to people who say it's ugly <laughs> i see it's temporary because of the nature of what we're doing uh, and because it is a temporary nature and we have to assess how it's working and then make a decision as a council a proper democratic decision as to whether or not we shift those into being more permanent Inevitably, we cannot put in um, you know, permanent features like, for example, a segregated cycling or an expanded pavement mm-hmm. where it's all properly done in the, in the normal stone. It's got stone edge curb and so on. Yeah. We can't do that under temporary funding. First of all, the cost is enormous to do that. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, we don't know whether or not we're going to retain all of these schemes. That's a process that we have to go through uh, and which will be done very carefully. So until we reach that stage, until we make that decision, we wouldn't be able to move it into a more permanent looking feature of the road. Mm. I do, however, slightly quibble with people who say it looks ugly, because as a council, what we have to do is to balance an enormous number of needs that are being expressed around the Spaces for People piece. So we have to balance... Um, the needs of all sorts of different people on the pavement and so on. And but one of the things that sits very much at the front of my head is safety. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the most vulnerable groups that you've got are cyclists mm-hmm. um, and indeed walkers, but primarily cyclists, because when they come into contact in an unsegregated form with cars, the danger levels are high. Mm-hmm. You, The danger of a car hitting you on a bike is serious and fatalities occur in the last two years we've had three fatal accidents in in edinburgh of people who've lost their lives needlessly because of driver conditions and driver behavior so you let's balance that out 
you know, let's look at all the different reasons why we're doing this and all the different features of, of spaces for people. And as a city, say, let's prioritise safety. Um, that, to me, is really incredibly important. But there's been so much misinformation around the space for people, around our motivation for doing it, around what we're trying to achieve, all the nonsense about this council being anti-car. You know, I'm a car driver myself, you know. <laughs> you know, I'm also a cyclist, I'm also a walker. I, I was going no, to say that's when you're not on your bike. <laughs> <laughs> well, my bike is getting a bit rattly now. I need to consider investing in, a, in, in another, another one, I think. Yeah. But, but, you know, th- these... These are aspects of, there's an awful lot of silliness being promulgated around the Spaces for People um, project, and most of it boils down to a resistance to change, a desire to keep the status quo. Um, And that is not about how a city makes progress. City is an organic thing. We have to keep changing in order to reflect the better conditions that we should be striving for. And that's what we're doing. We're reflecting public opinion that says we want different options. Yeah, change, of course, is always uh, is always painful, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I've got a couple more questions for you. Who designs the, um, the way that these streets are going to be uh, laid out in the new schemes? Who actually designs them? Or who has designed them? It's primarily our uh, internal team who do it. You know, so these are people who have been working on mm-hmm. active travel schemes and transport schemes for a long time mm-hmm. inside the council. But we also do it in partnership. So we're doing it in partnership with, for example, Sustrans, which is a specialist charity that looks at sustainable transport. And they've got a lot of specialist knowledge gained from right across the UK. They work with the UK government and the Scottish government uh, in various different settings. And they're able to give us some specialist advice on that and design. And and we use a couple of other consultancies as well. One of the reasons for that is not only the specialist knowledge, but it's also because, of course, what we've done is ramp up dramatically the number of schemes that we've delivered. So we've got 60 main schemes that we've delivered in the last year. Um, or, or, or the point of delivering. And you know, that's an enormous undertaking. So it would be very strange if we didn't look outside to get some of that specialist help and or extra capacity. However, having said all of that, um, all of that work when it comes back in is verified and checked with a lot of internal checking in the council that has all of that local knowledge I was referring to earlier on. So our, our, our transport engineers are looking at this very carefully to make sure that anything that is being is coming in from outside reflects what we're trying to do and delivers what we're trying to do. There's been a lot of, of uh, stuff talked about in terms of, oh, this has been designed by people in London and all the rest and so on. I think out of the 60 schemes, we've had two or three where we've had some additional design capacity from Sustrans and other uh, consultancies who are based in, in elsewhere outside of Edinburgh, and that's it. Mm. Well, yes, that's definitely one of the, the accusations that's been levelled on social media, which is always a hodgepodge of uh, you know variety of views. Um, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about was um, the potholes and the state mm. of the roads. I'm a cyclist and I'm also a car driver and a pedestrian. And, yeah, I think there are quite a lot of roads which could do with uh-huh. a bit of fixing. So um, one one question is, why is that not being done in spaces for people? And what are you going to do about it? Right. The In terms of the spaces, for, first of all, I would absolutely recognise 
the description that we've got a lot of potholes and we've got real problems of road conditions. There's no question about that. Um, one of the reasons why it seems to have suddenly accelerated during this period is because we had such a long extended period of bad weather. It has a dreadful impact on our roads. And so we are trying to play catch up on that to get round some of the, the most the most um, difficult examples of what's happening on the potholes. So we invest a lot of money every year in pothole repair. Potholes occur because of weather. They also occur because of the volume of traffic and the weight of traffic. So all of those things are things which have uh, changed in the last eight, ten years. Uh, we've seen a massive increase in the number of miles being driven inside Edinburgh. Every year we're driving 154 million more miles than we did eight to ten years ago um, inside the Edinburgh boundaries. That's a lot for a city of this to take Wow, that's, that's another great statistic for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, but, but it's very telling um, because people assume that it's all just the same. But of course, what that's producing is a lot of congestion, a lot of air pollution issues, which we're trying to tackle elsewhere um, in, in, other, in other ways. Um, and certainly a big impact on the road conditions. Um, we also have far more cars registered in Edinburgh than we had 10 years ago. All of that builds to an impact on the roads, and you combine that with bad weather and the sheer scale of roads that we've got in the city, it's, it's pretty difficult to keep up, basically. So um, we've got a band of people who are dedicated to this. Our, um, we are very careful about watching what we're doing in terms of how we go about doing it. And we've been making quite a lot of improvements about efficiencies. Mm -hmm. So although we're facing the big problem that we've got with the winter weather impact, and that would take a while to work its way out, I'm confident that by the time we hit eight, uh, August time, um, mm -hmm. August, September, into, into the beginning of October, that we will have made a substantial stride forward in terms of investment and effect. So I hope people will begin to see the difference. Mm -hmm. um, as a cyclist myself, I know the problems are in potholes. It's mm -hmm. very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. And um, we're working as hard as we can to get those fixed. So um, working hard, keeping on going, despite um, a lot of criticism, I think it's fair to say, and uh, just trying very hard to, uh, to make our city a, a bit better. How do you think we compare then with um, somewhere like Paris, where it seems everybody loves it? <laughs> well, it's it's interesting. It's a bit, it's a bit that looks good over there, but I don't want it on my doorstep kind of approach <laughs> that we're seeing in Edinburgh. I think mm. um, Paris is a shining example of what can happen when people in power recognise that there's a really serious issue. Um, and take radical steps to solve it. Mm. Uh, and they're moving really fast on it. The number of bike lanes, the change in the number of people riding bikes in, in, in central mm. Paris in particular um, has been phenomenal. Mm. And it's making a real difference to the city. I'd like to see us begin to edge our way towards that in Edinburgh. But the level of resistance in Edinburgh from, um, from some residents... Um, about the change to the status quo mm. is problematic because it's about not sharing. Yep. Um, it, it's about not recognising the fact that actually the city, for the sake, for many different reasons, has to change. Yep. Um, and unless we grasp that, 
and deal with it in as effective and as positive a way that we can, then we're going to continue to face lots of uphill battles, lots of difficulties, lots of misunderstandings and misinformation floating around. I've been astonished by some of the the uh, commentary that's emerged around Spaces for People, some of it very personal, um, some of it really quite deeply distressing, uh, and some of it deliberately misunderstanding what it is that we're trying to achieve. And the only reason we're doing all of this is because we're trying to make the city a better place, better place for, you know, asthmatic children, for example, Mm -hmm. um, a safer place for children to be able to ride to school. Uh, to build in the health benefits that come for those children now and in adulthood Mm -hmm. of trying to give people differences, trying to reduce transport poverty, for example, all -hmm. those things. Um, When you consider that 45% of people in in Edinburgh do not have access to a car, that's when you actually start to think about, well, where should transport policies be directed? They should be directed towards serving those people as well as those people who have the, the benefit of owning a car. So we're, we've got a very difficult task ahead of us, but it's one that we're up for and that we can explain and um, that we can justify, I think, very effectively. Unfortunately, the Spaces for People conversation has been, um, uh, has been difficult to make our way through. Yeah. Um, however, the positive part is that now that the schemes are broadly in and people are actually using them, my mailbox has changed dramatically in nature. A lot of the complaints were about schemes that weren't planning. Now that they're in, those complaints have just disappeared. Yes. And I'm getting a lot of people saying to me how fantastic this is mm-hmm. and how um, what a difference has made uh, to their family life, to you know, getting around and how much healthier uh, they feel that the city is becoming. Um, we, we have not talked in any way about uh, low traffic neighbourhoods. I think we'll have to leave that for a separate conversation, Leslie. Sure. And um, it's really nice to hear that there are some people that, you know, the, the mood of your mailbox has changed and people are actually... Uh, thinking to contact you and tell you about it and of course it's probably quite key that all these temporary schemes are actually being tweaked. Now I have one really really final question for you. Uh, I was up at Braid Road um, last Friday and of course what happened there was um, it was effectively opened before it ought to have been and there was a bit of confusion. I'm hoping that by this week it's probably hopefully it's calmed down a wee bit Um, but there that was one place where you really did make changes and you have actually reopened uh, the road travelling southward to vehicular traffic. Yes, indeed. Um, I'm going to be keeping a very careful watching brief on that one because I'm, I'm, I've got some worries about it because I think we've possibly lost something by reopening it. But we were hearing the concerns about the impact on public transport journey times, for example. Uh, And this is an effort to try and ensure that all of the different parts in that area are working properly. Um, I think you're right, there was some temporary upset about how that change was implemented. Um, But my understanding from officers, although I haven't had an opportunity to go over and look at it myself in the last couple of days, is that it's it's being fixed. Um, It's actually been one of the features of the Spaces for People aspect because we've had an awful lot of commentary. We've had a lot of front page news on the Edinburgh Evening News, for example, where people are, are commenting on schemes that are being half implemented, where they haven't actually been finished. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of you, know, oh, how do, how you how on earth can this make sense? Mm-hmm. And it's not until we actually finish the job that people can see how how it works mm-hmm. and can then start to get comfortable with it. So it's um, it's been one of the the difficult aspects of this that people haven't given things enough time mm-hmm. to bed in and for them to see the benefits. Well, we will come back to you in a few weeks perhaps and uh, chat to you again and see uh, see where things are going perhaps before the before or after the uh, June transport and environment committee meeting but uh, councillor McInnes thank you so much for your time just now you're very welcome it was good to talk it through thanks so Jeremy Balfour here you are back for a second term at Holyrood and uh, is it different this time you've been back for a wee wee well clearly Covid makes Parliament different, so there's much less social interaction. Uh, the Parliament sadly is closed um, at the moment, so we've got no people coming in. Um, and obviously, as a new uh, as a new MSP, you got the whole excitement. You've got to find your new staff, work out where the toilet is. <laughs> Some of that is easier second time round. Um, but yeah, still. So we, you know we, where the loser. I know right? where the toilets are, <laughs> but absolutely still the excitement of being here representing the people of Lothian looking forward to another five years. And the numbers in the Tory group have not actually changed. You've got exactly the yep, same number. Right. Yep. You've got some new faces. Yep. And in particular, of course, you've got a new Scottish leader, a leader of the Scottish Conservatives in Douglas Ross. Do you think there's a change in approach? Um, I think it's uh, a really good team. I think it's a more diverse team than we had last time round, which is great. Got. Uh, people from ethnic minorities, more women within the parliament. So I think from a Conservative group that's all really positive news. Um, and I think we very much setting ourselves up again to challenge the government where it needs challenge, to work um, where we can cross party for the good of Scotland. Um, but also I think over the next number of years developing policies which show us um, as the party in waiting, the party who is going to form the next government after the elections in five years' time. You've got a way to go if you're going to form the next government, have you not? 31 seats and the and the SNP have well, I 64? Think, I think if you look at the numbers and if you look actually where we were in regard to, you know, a, a few a few points different one with the other, could have seen an extra quite a number of MSPs elected. So here in Lovian, we were 4,500 short of getting a fourth MSP. You know, with an electorate of 800,000, that is absolutely doable. And if you replicate that across Scotland, um, it can happen. And I think also there is going to come a time, and I think it's coming quite soon, where people will start saying, well, actually, we've voted for this government for 15, 16 years. They're not delivering on the key issues that actually affect each of us if we live here in Edinburgh and Lothian. You've had a, a long number of years now, um, Jeremy, as a, as a politician, first of all, of course, at the council up the road, at the, the, the empty city <laughs> chambers, um, and, and here in, in Holyrood. So, so what are you going to concentrate on this time? Where, where are your... Um, we're outside Parliament. We should probably say that to people. We're outside Parliament where people are basking in the sun. Um, but where are your priorities going to lie? Well, I, I've been asked to look at... Um, social security and local government, so they will be two key areas that I want to concentrate on, particularly local government, which we've also got local elections coming up in now 11 months' time. The underfunding of local government, the, the pressure we're put on 
but key issues around Edinburgh and Lothian, so spaces for people, I just think it's a good, good concept, but it's just not working for so many council, people. that's a council issue. But it's a council issue that the parliament needs to be able to speak into. So as an MSP, we need to be able to represent everybody within our constituency and within our area. I'm going to take my mask off at a distance here and I'm going to let you see that I'm smiling <laughs> at you to say that the Spaces for People measures were introduced first of all by the Tory UK government and then passed down to the Scottish government. All the funding has trickled down. But the so, implementation, so the implementation has been, so Spaces for People as a concept, as I said at the start, absolutely. How it's been implemented by the SNP uh, Labour coalition here in Edinburgh, absolute disaster. And that's why I think there really needs to be an overview from the Scottish Parliament. Going forward, um, I do think there are still a number of issues around disability which we need to take forward and look at, at, at collectively. And I'm, and I'm pleased that there's actually now more disabled MSPs in the Parliament itself. And I think we need to be able to work cross-party on that because actually there's a lot of agreement on it. But I think there are going to be challenges, particularly around employment, um, as we come out of this COVID, as we come into recovery, where are the jobs going to be and are we going to leave behind anyone who has a disability or from other protected characteristics? And, and you know, going, going back to uh, the funding of local government, if that's where one of your priorities is going to be, um, why do you think it is that the SNP are continually accused um, of underfunding local government? Why do they keep doing that when during this pandemic, they've thrown money to um, towards local government, and here in Edinburgh, they've had an extra 20 million, for example, which is going to make a huge difference. So, so why is there underfunding, and what can be done to stop it? Well, I think it's a political choice. So you choose what your priorities are. I, I think the SNP, by and large, are centralising party, so they want to bring things more to the Scottish Parliament, and I'm not sure, in honesty they actually trust many of their SNP councillors and so they don't want to give them that power and responsibility. Um, how do we it? Well, we make sure that when we bring forward proposals, when we bring forward a budget uh, next year, that that budget itself will have more money for local government um, and that we actually say we do need to give power back to local communities, to local authorities and we need to trust them. And, you know, fair enough, people will then get a choice of how to vote for them and then we can make those choices. Um, but I think we need to give them that power and stop taking so much here with them centralising and, and give it back locally. So that, would, that would make a difference. And, um, and what about you then? Your office in Roseburn is closed, I imagine. Um, so how do you interact then with your constituents? Yeah, I mean, the, the office in Roseburn was obviously um, a different MSPs, so, so that will be closed over the next couple of months. Um, we'll be looking at setting up a new office somewhere in Lothian um, over the summer autumn period. Um, but I'm just sending out in the next week um, posters uh, to all schools, hospitals, shops, which will have my contact details on it. Um, and, you know, anybody's got an issue, anybody's got a question, my email, my telephone number there, get in touch and I'll come. And we'll be looking at what is the best way I, you know, I think in some ways the surgery in a live view on a Friday at 10 o'clock in the morning doesn't really engage. Most people are either working yeah, or we can't people. get to them and it can exclude people. So I'm going to be looking at different ways, whether that's going to shops, going to community centres, those kind of areas. But making sure that 
I'm writing about across the whole of Lothian um, so that people can contact me. I suppose people can also interact with you over Zoom or yes. even on the phone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do think Zoom, uh -huh. I, know, I think we are pretty all tied out of Zoom, mm -hmm. but actually, particularly for those who struggle to leave home, I've got caring responsibilities, got a disability, then we can set up Zoom meetings and they're much more easy way for some people to deal with. Great. You'll not really be looking forward to going back into the chamber this afternoon on such a beautiful day, but uh, I, I imagine, I, I feel that you, you are enthusiastic about the next five years ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And, and today we've got a very key decision for, for Edinburgh. Because we've got the decision of are we going to go down to level, down to level, down to level one. That will have a mass impact upon tourism, um, upon businesses. And I think what we need from this government is some certainty because we are people are trying to plan particularly for July, August. Sadly, we see the tattoo has mm. had to pull out because we couldn't get those guarantees. The festival, the fringe are wavering. Do we go ahead? Do we not go ahead? Well, the, the, the festival, as far as I know, is going ahead and is going ahead on a reduced seating basis. Certainly. But only if we can get to level one and we can guarantee that we're at level one for mm. August as well. I know the fringe is, you know, there was articles in the paper at the weekend, the friends saying, do we go ahead or do we not go ahead? So I think for business, for hotels, for restaurants, all the kind of services, we need that certainty. Well, I hope we get it this afternoon. Absolutely. Jeremy Balfour, thank you very much for speaking with me. Thank you.